Father, thank you for this time now. Please, would you open our eyes, help us to see what you're saying, listen carefully to your voice and your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last three weeks, we've seen, if you've been with us, and don't worry if you haven't, but we've seen a, a, what you might call a kind of ideal view, a biblical view of sex and marriage and beauty and God's design for those things and what their purpose is in his plan. And we might think, well, you know, that's all great as far as it goes, but does it actually help me live right here, right now, in my particular circumstances, whatever they may be, with my own sexuality, my desires and longings, my regrets and failures, my wounds at the hands or the whims of others? Does it help me when I daily face temptation? Uh, I might say I'm in, I am in principle committed to the view of sex and marriage that we've heard over the last three weeks, but in practice I know I find it so hard to live in accordance with what I believe. I mess up maybe in action, maybe in thought, in lust, in ways I'm too ashamed to share with others. What does God have to say about any of these things? Is it just, you know, well, here are the rules, here are the expectations, now get on with living them. And what does God know anyway about what it's like to be me, we might think? Does he know what it's like to be tired and alone and facing real temptation in the moment? Well, tonight we see that the answer to that question is, in fact, yes. He knows what it is to be tired and alone and to face temptation. There is both hope and help for sinners like you and me. God hasn't just issued a perfect blueprint from above and said, you know, here's what you're supposed to do, now you get on with it, and when you fail, well, that's just not good enough. He's become a man, and that man, Jesus Christ, has experienced temptation like us in order then to die for us. Now we're going to spend most of our time looking at that reading that we heard from John chapter 4, but it's worth just pointing out a couple of verses that spell out uh, what I've just said that help us as we get into the, the reading that we heard. So at the beginning of John's gospel, famous verse, um, John says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He became what does that mean? It means he took on a human body. He took on human experience, as we will see in a minute in John chapter 4. We've, we've seen over the last couple of weeks that in and of itself, sexual desire is a good thing. It's not evil. There's nothing wrong with it, with that, with that desire. Where we go wrong is when we seek to give expression to that desire in the wrong context. Because we think, you know, if, if I experience sexual desire, God must want me to have sex, and why does it matter with whom and, and how and, and all the rest of it? But as we've seen, in fact, that good sexual desire is not simply for here and now, and in fact can never be fully satisfied now, but that desire is designed to point forwards to the new heavens and the new earth where we will know Jesus face to face. But sexual desire in itself 
is a good thing. And maybe we don't think about this very much when it comes to Jesus, but the result of that is if we say, well, okay, sexual desire is part of being human, well, we can assume Jesus experienced sexual desire in the sense that he had a sexuality which was part of his human experience. Now, the Bible tells us nothing about what that was. So we need to be very careful not to speculate beyond what the Bible tells us. But at the same time, it would be wrong to think that Jesus was somehow kind of asexual, that he sort of floated above all all of that, as if that is not very holy. That's not true. And then add to that what the author of the the letter to the Hebrews says in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Not only did Jesus become a man, but he was tempted just as we are, and crucially, he did not sin. Now, it's worth noting that there are different ways that we can be tempted. There is what you might call external temptation and also internal intent. uh, temptation one is itself essentially sin and the other isn't so internal temptation is where our own sinful natures which have gone down a well-trodden path before tempt us again to do whatever that is you know so someone has a tendency to let their mind wander to, to ungodly thoughts that is internal temptation the old fashioned word for that is concupiscence and that is different from what Jesus experienced because that is itself the Bible tells us that is itself sin that sort of internal temptation that's part of what it means to be a sinner and Jesus was not a sinner but then there is external temptation finding yourself in circumstances where there is a choice you could take an ungodly path or you could take a godly one and that is what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 is describing And that is what we see in John chapter 4 as we turn there. So we see, first of all, Jesus experienced temptation. We're told Jesus is going through Samaria. And uh, have a look at verse 6 on page 1066. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So it's the middle of the day, it's hot, and as we already just heard from from John chapter 1, well, Jesus is God, but he's also a real human being. And so he's tired, because human beings get tired. And he's thirsty, because human beings need to drink. He needs a drink, we're told. Verse 7, will you give me a drink? And then uh, verse 8, we read, not only is he tired and he's thirsty, But he's by himself. He's alone. His disciples have gone into the town to buy food. Now, when you think of the range of ways that people can mess up in sexual sin, so much of it starts with being tired and alone. And in what follows, in the way that John writes what happens, there is a little bit of a kind of sexual tension in the interaction that takes place. Now, why do I say that? You might think that's a bit of a surprise from what what we heard. We'll, We'll think about this. 
We've already had in John's Gospel, we've already had a wedding in chapter 2. The famous wedding at Cana and the water into wine and all of that. And Jesus there, he actually plays the role of the bridegroom. Because what does the, the bridegroom is the guy who provides the wine as well as getting married. But, you know, in, in, in that culture, it's his job to provide the wine. And, and huge embarrassment, they've run out of wine. And then Jesus steps in and provides the wine so that what happens is that the master of the ceremonies goes to the bridegroom and says, well done, this is amazing, this wine that you've laid on. And, that, of course, it's actually Jesus. Jesus then playing the part of the bridegroom. And then we come to the end of John chapter 3, um, the, the next chapter, and John the Baptist says these words. So verse 28, um, just over, over to the left-hand side there. Uh, this is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. He says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Now, can you see what's going on there? See, John is saying, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Implication, Jesus is the bridegroom. Okay, so we've already got, in the way that John is writing this, we've, we've got bridegroom kind of imagery going on. Um, and that, that sort of language and imagery is flying around in our minds. And then, John chapter 4, we come to a well. And basically, in those days, a well like this is a singles bar. Now, maybe you don't believe me, and you think this is, this is a bit random, but actually, think about this. I don't know whether you know these things. In Genesis, do you know, where does Isaac meet Rebecca? Don't worry if you don't know these stories, but where does Isaac meet Rebecca? He meets her at a well. Where does Jacob meet Rachel? He meets her at a well. Where does Moses meet Zipporah at the beginning of Exodus? Any guesses? It's at a well. It is at a well. See, wells are where lovers meet. Okay, and if you want further proof that, that this is what people would have understood, right at the end of the bit that we heard, that the reading, verse 27, what happens? The disciples finally come back and, and they're surprised to find him talking to a woman, so much so that they don't know what to say. It's all a bit embarrassing. Now, if this was a perfectly normal interaction between Jesus and this woman, you know, as, as we read it today, not, not understanding about wells and all the rest of it, John would not have recorded their kind of surprise and, and embarrassment, like, do we say anything, you know, at that point, as they come back to him. Now, as we'll see, there are aggravating features that make it even more shocking that Jesus should be talking to this particular woman at that point. You know, but in general, men would not speak to women that they did not know. And even more so, they wouldn't do it at a well. This is the equivalent of walking in on two people and immediately thinking, oh my goodness, there's something going on here. This is really awkward. And yet in between... Jesus meeting the woman and the disciples coming back and we've got all this sort of sense of, as I've described it, kind of that sexual tension. But what do we find in between? We find Jesus acted with total integrity. Jesus acted with total integrity. So the fact is it would have been easy for a man in Jesus' position to take advantage of this woman. We don't know her precise circumstances uh, but there's that bit in the middle verse uh, 17 18 
where we discover, or Jesus knows, he knows without having to ask her, that uh, she's been married five times and she's now in an extramarital relationship. Now, no doubt she's been sinned against and used by men as much as anything else. We don't know the precise circumstances, but she's certainly vulnerable and she's certainly easy to take advantage of. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't propose marriage either, which would have been the other thing you might have expected in this scene, as, the, as uh, the, the mood music of the scene is kind of taking us in that direction. This is, what obviously, this is obviously going to happen. You know, if this was a movie, you'd just be expecting that to happen. But no, he actually he offers her something way more satisfying than any human relationship, even marriage, could offer. Way more satisfying. That is the point, you see. He offers living water so that this woman who has been thirsting and never satisfied, and you think she's been through all these failed relationships and it's all been so painful and she's been thirsting. She's been longing to find real fulfillment and satisfaction and she's been not finding that. And he says, "You here, ask me and I will give you living water and you will never be thirsty again. So what is Jesus doing? You see, he is all about her and fulfilling her needs and his own desires are nowhere to be seen. He breaks all conventions. Now in this kind of situation, many men will go one of two ways. So one is to see such a woman as a sexual object to satisfy their desires in some way. The other is to see such a woman as a sexual threat, to run a mile from her. You know, I can't possibly associate with such a woman. You know, what would people think if they saw me with her? I'd better, I'd better run away. But Jesus is all about her and what she needs. And so as you can see on the handouts, the back of the handout, you, the, the net result of this is that we can see here four things briefly. We can see, first of all, this is good news for women. Good news for women. If you're a woman, here is a man who wants to serve you. Here is a man who, faced with the temptation to treat a woman as a sexual object or a sexual threat, chooses instead to see her as she actually is, a human being made in the image of God, who needs to find true life in him. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you see Jesus is showing to us, however damaged by sins, whether sexual or non-sexual, you are. Sins you've done yourself, sins others have done to you. Maybe you still feel trapped in a cycle of sin that no one else knows about. Whoever you are, here is a man who will truly satisfy your deepest needs and longings. And his name is Jesus. Ask him, he says, and he will give you living water. That's all you have to do, ask, and he will give it to you. So it's good news for women. It's good news for men. So for a start, here is a model for how to treat women, whether it's a woman that you're married to or, or all the other women in the world. 
See, it's time to repent of seeing women either as objects or as threats. Because that is not how Jesus treated women. Now, maybe in the Q&A we should probe a bit further about questions about how men and women who are not married to each other interact with one another. There's much wisdom needed as we think that through. But here are a few ways men in particular can sometimes go wrong. You see, if you find particular female clothing, for example, unhelpful, I think unhelpful is the kind of standard evangelical term, realise that is fundamentally your problem as a man. Now, it doesn't mean it's not a real problem, and there is a separate conversation to be had about what it means for both men and women to dress modestly and so on, but look at Jesus. He doesn't see this woman as a threat, even though he could, and the culture around him might tell him to do so. He loves her as she is, and in doing so, he does nothing inappropriate, and he does not sin. Now, of course, there is real wisdom in being sensible about, for example, not spending lots of time with someone that you aren't married to, especially if you or they or other people could conclude that some kind of exclusive attachment was possible or likely from that relationship. There is wisdom needed in these things. But let's learn from Jesus. The key to this for both men and women is to find satisfaction and fulfilment in him whether we are a man or a woman, to see that he is the one who is going to give us living water. He is the one who is going to satisfy all our deepest needs and desires. And it's only when we do that that, for example, men will find the resources to treat women as Jesus treated them. So good news for women, good news for men. And then two things that we receive in Christ before we finish. In Christ we receive his perfect sexual history. One of the reasons the New Testament um, shows us Jesus' perfection in so many ways is not so we see this unattainable standard and feel like failures because we, we never live up to Jesus' perfection. It's not just to say, look, here are, here are the rules, you've got to keep them, and, you know, really bad when you don't. It's not, ju- it's not saying that. It's because we need to understand that his perfect life, the Bible calls it his perfect righteousness, is what is given to us, imputed to us, when we trust in Jesus and are therefore united with him. We get the record of his perfect life And all the ways that he does not mess up and did not mess up when we have messed up. We get the the record of that given to us as a gift. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the ways that we have messed up. He doesn't see the sin that we have done. The things we may be very conscious of. The things that we may be deeply ashamed of. When we trust in Jesus, he takes those things on himself. He has paid the penalty for them and we receive his perfect life that he has lived so that when God looks at us, he sees that instead. 
And so we, as we see how Jesus interacts with this woman here and, and how he treats her without sin and, and, and with total in integrity, marvel at him and rejoice that when we trust in Jesus, that is what God sees when he looks at us. And then the last thing. In Christ we receive his constant help in the battle. See, this is what being joined to Jesus means, united with him. So think of those times. Think of those times when we think, I am tired and alone. That's where we started, wasn't it? Well, actually, if you're trusting Jesus, only one of those things is true. Yes, we will still be tired. And we will still be tempted. That is life in a fallen world. But we'll never be alone. See, when you're tired and you think, I'm alone, and oh, the, the outcome feels totally inevitable. You know, this is what always happens. This is the kind of person that I am. My thoughts always go to this place. I fall into the same habits and actions. It's just what I'm like. But because Jesus was tired and alone and did not sin and lived a life of integrity and obedience and went to the cross and died, the Christian now is never alone as we face sin in the battle day by day. Because what does he say? He says, ask me and I will give you living water. I will satisfy your deepest desires, the desires you think can only be satisfied by giving in to temptation, desires deeper still that you were hardly aware of. He says, ask me, and I will give you living water. And he will do that daily. And so the question is whether we believe him as we face temptation day by day. Maybe we think, ah, can't be right. Well, give it, give it a try. Come to him and say, Jesus, I, I'm really struggling with this situation that I'm in. And all of us will struggle in different ways, no matter our circumstances. Say, I need living water from you. I trust that you only can satisfy my deepest desires. And do that daily. Go to him in the battle. That is what he asks us to do. Receive the living water that he offers. Another name for what Jesus offers is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you see, comes to live in us. And so we, again, we need only ask him, we're not alone. We're not alone. We need only ask him and he will help us as we fight the battle. Now, we're actually going to come back up. We're going to finish this series. We're going to come back to Romans 5 to 8, those middle chapters in, that, in the wonderful book of Romans. And actually, this is going to be, as we turn back to Romans, it's going to be a perfect companion to what we've been thinking about through this series. Because there's so much there about what it means to fight sin in the power of the Holy Spirit as those who by nature are sinners but are also those for whom Jesus died. So let me encourage us to make the most of um, that uh, series that, that we have in the, in the coming weeks. But for now, 
let's, uh, let's just take a moment to, uh, to reflect in the quiet on what we've heard about our own response uh, before we sing our final song. And do be thinking particularly if there are questions that arise that you think it would be helpful to talk further about. Let's just have a moment of quiet now. Jesus was tired, tempted and alone. But as we trust in him, we may be tired and tempted, but we are never alone. Father, we thank you for Jesus' perfect life of integrity in his treatment of all those that he came into contact with. We marvel at him as we are deeply aware of our own shortcomings, the sins we have done and the sins that have been done to us. And so we come to him for living water that will satisfy our deepest longings and desires, regrets and failures. We thank you that only in him will we find living water that wells up to eternal life. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And we've just got three questions for starters, but do feel free to uh, submit some more. Um, I think we'll start with one on the right to start with. This came earlier in the sermon. Why is internal temptation classified as sin if it's a thought or desire that just comes to us and we can't control it? Are we held accountable? Good question. Very good question. It's, it's, it's a good question. Um, but I think it's one, one that's... Um, uh, I'm just finding a... I think that the basic point is where else does it come from if not from us? So who's responsible if, if not us? Um, and um, I guess the reason we might want to kind of say I don't, I don't agree with that is because of a sense in us that says I ought to be able to save myself. I ought to be able to be perfect and I don't think it's fair to be on a kind of playing field where I can't even begin to live a good life because inside me are these desires which pull me in the opposite direction. Um, and, um, but I think the Bible says that's the point. Um, that is what we're like. And so we do have desires from, from within our own hearts that are broken. And we sometimes just go, I don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm so angry. I mean, I'm just, I'm just really, really angry. And like, I, you know, I, I, I didn't wake up today deciding to be angry. I just am angry. And I can't really explain where that's coming from. But then it's, it's sort of saying, well, who else is responsible for that? It, it is us who are responsible for that. That's part of our brokenness and part of our sin is that uh, those parts of us that, are, that rationally we think, I can't really explain why I'm like this, um, but I am, and that's why I need Jesus. But do you, you have think, anything to add? Uh, yeah, do you think it's maybe the, the, the difficulty comes then in using the language of temptation for that, that 
you know, the desire in itself is already sin and therefore maybe temptation isn't the right word to use for it? So I think, yeah, so I think it's just that the Bible uses that word. So James chapter 1 um, uses that kind of language. So um, there are, you know, there are examples where um, that is what is happening is, is, we are, yeah, being tempted, tempted in, in different ways. Um, well, I guess the Bible also uses the, the language of, um, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, is it about kind of actually God providing a way out for each temptation and then do we run the risk of saying, well, there isn't actually a way out from those temptations? So, yes, I think you have to, you have to understand what is meant. So the, the, in James chapter 1, I mean, we haven't really got time to go into this in detail, but in James chapter 1, the word which is translated at one point in the chapter as trial, which, which, which imagines something outside of us, is actually the same word that the, the Bibles will then translate later as temptation. So it's the same thing, and then context is determining how the Bible translators think is, you know, English doesn't completely line up with Greek all the time, so they have to make a judgment call on what, what is meant by that word being used at that point. And so in, in James chapter 1, um, it, it also says this, verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. So that, that's where I would go to look to say, look, that's why we seem to end up having to s- distinguish between two different types of temptation, because that's just what the, the Bible uses, though, the word temptation to cover this broad spectrum of experiences. And so when it says, wh- when Hebrews 4.15 then says, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, it can't, he can't actually mean the the type of temptation that James then says in verse 14 is itself sinful because he's saying in Hebrews 4:15 he wasn't sinful do you see what I'm saying yeah, so yeah, so yeah. so it's it's all about how words are being used at that point to cover the um uh, the, the range of what we're experiencing in our lives okay hope that answered whoever's question it, it was excellent thank you right um right we've got um ooh, right okay how about this one? Um, there are people at church who don't have Christian friends to confide in and don't meet regularly with other Christians, uh, with Christians one-to-one. How can we help ensure no one is alone with their struggles? Hmm. I think, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's very, um, you know, it, uh, to hear that in one sense is, is, not what anybody wants to hear but we want you know i think we are here for one another so if somebody feels like i am alone we 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 want to know about that so that we can we can try and and help i think you know the, the the place to start is with somebody that we trust and to to try and express some of what 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 we are feeling about um our our, our christian experience with somebody that, that that we trust and um yeah, what would you add to I that? guess, you know, we try and have structures, want a better word, uh, within church that, that actually facilitate people getting to know a smaller number of people better. Um, you know, it, it's, it's always going to be the case that we're not going to know everybody in church equally well.
well or have an equally open relationship with, with different people. Um, but we all need those kind of relationships of, uh, of accountability and, and honesty. Um, you know, I think that, that that's a must for, for, for the Christian life and part of what it is to be part of, part of the church. Um, and I guess it, it's an encouragement to all of us to be involved in, in small groups or not to be only meeting with people on a Sunday, Sunday morning, that, that actually we need to find ways of developing those, those, those friendships. I would, I would recommend uh, prayer partnerships as well. I mean, I've always been, as far back as I remember, involved in either prayer partnerships or prayer triplets, where those those relationships do deepen, and, and it is a context where you can you can share, um, you know, share honestly your, your struggles. Mm. Um, yeah, I think so, that's, yeah, I think I think that's that's right. I think. Um, uh, do not give up meeting together, as some have been in the habit of doing, but um, you know, keep on encouraging each other. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Um, we, we do need each other, um, and, and we can't do this alone. So I, I guess, how can we help ensure no one is alone with their struggles? It, it is a two-way thing, isn't it, that actually we... You know, we, we will try and do what we can as a church in setting up things to help people deepen relationships, but actually there has to be a willingness, I guess, to, to engage in. Yeah, and I think, I think if it, it starts with us, you know, whoever we are, it, it starts with us looking. If you think that person looks like they're alone, well, sounds like you're being called to go and befriend them um, or, or, or make sure that somebody is befriending them. Um, it, it is all of our job um, to do that. I mean, related to that, um, still on the subject of being alone, how does the truth that I am not alone help me because I still feel alone? Mm, yeah, thank you. I mean, this is a you know, really deep question. Um, and I, there's a number of places we could go with, with this. But often our feelings don't match reality. And that, that, that's, that's a place to start. So I think, I think our world tells us that what we feel is reality. I think the Bible tells us what, it, what we feel matters. It's not that it's irrelevant at all, um, but it may not always match up with what is actually true. Um, and so um, it starts, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a classic book on this by a, a a preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression where he talks about that kind of mismatch between what you know is true and then what you feel is true and, he's, and he has this thing about preaching to your own feelings so you, 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 you start by saying Moses is going to go and rescue the cat um, you start, you know, you're thinking where, where are these feelings coming from? Well they're coming from inside me again they're not coming from somewhere else they are me, my feelings are me um, but they may not be in line with reality, so I need to tell my feelings the truth. And, and, um, and, and there's an element of how that is what faith is, is to hold on to the truth and to pray for my feelings to catch up with reality, yeah. rather, than, yeah. rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, 
It's all right. I have faith that you'll... And that is kind of, I suppose, what the Christian life is about. It, it's, it's learning to trust God, uh, to trust God's, God's word in every situation that, that, that we're in. Mm. Mm. And I suppose that act, act on that trust as well. So, yeah, talk to Jesus. Should we just, there's, some, well, there's one coming back on that internal, external yeah, temptation yeah, thing. Should I just do that quickly? Yeah, yeah, sure. So if, um, if internal temptation is sin already, then is it no worse to give in to that temptation? Well, you know, there's a sense in which, it, yes, it, it, is, it is worse. But I think, we, you know, we, again, we, we want to kind of grade sin and say, you know, is one sin worse than another? I mean, all sin is terrible. All sin is what caused Jesus to die on the cross. But the more we sin, the more that, um, you know... The, the, the more that that grieves our heavenly Father, so it, it, you know, even though it, temptation itself that arises from within us is is sin to begin with, um, the, the the fact is to give into that is further sin, um, and so that's you know that 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 that's that's worse. Where is it? Where in the Bible is this distinction from? Well, I, I, it it is because of those verses that I started to allude to. So. You've got to, you know, you, when you look at what the Bible says about a subject, you can't just look at one verse and go, this is everything the Bible has to say and I can conclude everything from it. You have to read everything, the whole counsel of God about something. And particularly when you start to find that different authors have slightly different emphases in the way they express things, you then have to think, how do these things fit together? And so the point is, if on the one hand... Um, the Bible is saying Jesus is tempted in every way that we are yet without sin and yet on the other hand it's also saying uh, you're tempted when you're dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed which is James chapter 1 verse 14 um, what are you going to do with that? Because it's, it's using the same words to say on the one hand um, temptation is something that comes from within and is, a, is, it, 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 is itself sin and on the other hand it's telling you that Jesus was tempted and he didn't sin so what, what, what do we do with that? The, the, I mean, this is something that theologians have thought a lot about over the history of the church, and the, the way that it has traditionally been expressed is to talk in terms of the, a distinction between um, inner temptation and outer temptation. So the 39 articles that the Church of England um, believes, which is sort of expression of our faith in the Church of England, has this actually as an article of faith, that this concupiscence, which is the, the old-fashioned word for internal temptation, is itself sin. So that is, that is a sort of historically normal Protestant thing to believe. And actually the alternative to that, which is to say, no, you know, internal temptation like that isn't sin, it's only, it's only sin when I consciously um, go, go along with it, that's actually Roman Catholic. That is a Roman Catholic sort of doctrine of, of, of belief. Now, there's, there's way more we could say, and I'm not just saying you've got to believe it because it's what the Church of England says. You do have to look at what the Bible says. But it's just to sort of flag it up and say, look, when these things have been thought about a lot, and that is the way that people generally have tried to explain it, there's obviously a bit more going on here than simply, oh, well, this Bible verse says everything I need to know, and that's all I need to say. Um, so it's just, it's just worth I'd, I'd love to talk further about that with anybody who's still not quite sure about what's being said there.
Okay. Um, let's. <laughs> well, there's one there. Yeah. Let's go for the other one. Yeah. Um, am I right in uh, am I right to in thinking? Perfect relationships start with a servant heart and a single people. We need to serve each other under Jesus. What is the church doing to assist singles to meet each other? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the thing is, we're not, a, you know, we're not a dating agency, and such things do exist, um, and Christian versions of those exist. Great, lovely. But church, church is about more than meeting other people to get married to them, and actually part of what we have been talking about through this whole series is, if you're single, finding a marriage partner is not your number one priority. It cannot be that if you're a Christian. Your number one priority, if you're a Christian, is to know Jesus better. And that is what church is about. Num- you know, if a, a byproduct of that might be that you meet somebody and, you know, in the, in the normal course of interacting with others in church, um, sometimes that happens. But, um, yeah, our number, yeah, go on, yeah. Okay, maybe I've misunderstood what, it, what, what is being um, said there. So, so uh, how do we encourage friendships among Christians that's, that are supportive? I think that's kind of what we were talking about before in terms of in as many different ways as possible, but if there's a gap in the way that that's being done, it starts with us. So um, fill the gap. Uh, I suppose no, no such thing as perfect relationship yeah. Um, actually, I do remember hearing about um, a, a large evangelical church in Birmingham um, that actually did set up, um, I think it's a nationwide kind of date, Christian dating agency, because actually they were saying, if we're expecting our single Christians to be faithful when they are limiting deliberately you know their their, ch- their choices if they want if they want to be faithful to to Jesus and actually particularly in some churches where you know there may not be very many you know single females very many single males and actually they saw it as a as an expression of of love for their 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 singles to actually help them in in this area so although you're absolutely right that you know it's not our main aim as Christians it's not our main focus as Christians nevertheless it is a big issue you know who you marry if you marry is a big thing so actually you know I would say I don't think there's anything wrong with Christians availing themselves of of forums that will enable them to meet maybe suitable Christians who they wouldn't otherwise. Or or come and serve on a Christian summer camp. That's another good way of doing it. (laughs) Joke. Kind of joke. Um, Right. We'll do the last question and then we've got to stop. Indeed, indeed. Right.
Um, in ancient single bars, they are, ser they are served water. What shall a man do when he goes to a bar and he is served alcohol? Well, I don't really understand what that question means. I suppose well, wells aren't wells Yeah, aren't well, that sort of singles bar is served water, but alcohol was certainly known in the ancient world. Um, you know, uh, I, I, the, Paul, Paul says, take a little, to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. You know, there's nothing wrong with a bit of alcohol, but exercise self-control. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Should we pray? Let me. Indeed. Father, thank you so much for this time, and we um, thank you again for your word. We thank you for how you speak into these um, situations that we find ourselves in today, whether married or single, um, whatever situation we find ourselves in. Thank you that there is real grace and life and living water in Jesus, and help us to keep looking to him, and help us to care for one another and to point one another to him, particularly um, for um, when we do feel alone, when we uh, struggle to find appropriate people to share our, our burdens with. We want to be a church where we're able to do that. Help us to do that better and more and more. Amen. Amen.